0: Okay, if you will take your Bibles out, please, and open them to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7. We return to our text from last week, and um, we're going to be here for a little bit longer. Hebrews chapter 7, and, and we'll be starting at, uh, at verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which means king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually let's pray. Father, we ask that you give to us grace in this day and that you would give us understanding. Lord, help us see with clarity that peace flows from righteousness. And help us see with clarity that the path to righteousness is only through Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. Peace is the great desire of all of humanity. How we define that desire, well, that's altogether another thing. It is often man's reckless pursuit of perceived peace at all cost that have created our greatest evils, our greatest trials, and our most damaging hardships. We forget that peace is not a random feeling of contentment. It is not primarily a subjective emotion. Peace is a condition that flows from being in right standing with the God of the universe. All men desire it, but only the sons of God possess it, because peace is the gift of our great King. So I want to think with you this morning about what peace is and about how we are given peace as children of God. I want to think with you this morning about what the absence of peace looks like in the world around us, because we see it everywhere. And I want to think with you this morning about what the solution to the absence of peace actually is. All too often the church, along with the culture, are engaged in the process of treating the symptoms rather than the cause. And So it's important for us to understand these things because God has indeed given us a healing cure for our absence of peace. So as I mentioned last week, it's important for us to understand that righteousness precedes peace. And when we're looking at this, we're we're told that this is Melchizedek, which is translated the king of righteousness, who was himself the king of Salem. And Salem is a word for peace. So the king of righteousness is in place before he is the king of peace. Often, we think that we can find peace, and once I have peace within myself, and once I have happiness within myself, and once I have contentment within myself, then I'm not going to need to do anything that's wrong, so righteousness will grow. But that's not the way it works. Because in the end, it is only Jesus being our king of righteousness which allows us to know him as king of peace. Now, it's not because he doesn't have any authority over those who are outside of his kingdom. It's not that Jesus couldn't exert his will and bring peace to the whole earth without them submitting to him. But it's because he gives peace as a gift to those who are his own. It is a peace that he shares because it is his peace. Now what this means is that we can absolutely have no peace whatsoever until we are at peace with God. This is the foundational problem that the entire world is struggling under. James chapter 3 verses 17 and 18 say this, The wisdom that comes from above is first of all pure, then peaceable, then gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the gift of God that is given to us. It is the fact that God gives us his peace. The wisdom that comes from above is what produces peace. This is the righteousness of God being poured out on his people. And it is the work of righteousness that brings the very things that people often mistake for peace. Okay, We look at things and we say, if I just have this, I'll have peace. If I can just get this thing right, then I will have peace in my life. If I can just resolve this set of circumstances, then these things won't plague me any longer. And we look at peace as if it's completely circumstantial. And we we mistake the circumstances for the peace. Because peace can exist regardless of your circumstances. Peace can exist in the darkest places, and peace can exist in the most chaotic times. Look at me at Isaiah chapter 32. Isaiah chapter 32, and we'll start reading at verse 16. Now this is the result, if we, if we back up in fact to verse 1, um, speaking of Christ, Isaiah proclaims this, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule with justice. And then we'll skip down to, to verse 16, where it gives the, the end result of the process of Christ reigning in righteousness. And it says this, Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. The work of righteousness will be peace. And the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. My people will dwell in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Though hail comes down in the forest and the city is brought low in humiliation. Blessed are you who sow beside all waters. Who send out freely the feet of the ox and the donkey. It's a remarkable statement when you consider what's inside this. God gives us a king who brings us righteousness. And the work of righteousness is what? Peace. Once we are established in a right relationship with God, the outflow of that is peace. And then look at what comes out of this. It says, The effect of righteousness, this is the righteousness which has just produced peace, the effect of righteousness will be quietness and assurance forever. My people will dwell in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, in quiet resting places. That all sounds nice and and good. But notice how it's not connected to their circumstances. Though hail comes down in the forest and though the city is brought low in humiliation. In other words, all around you chaos might be falling, but God gives you peace. And he gives you peaceful dwelling and he gives you peaceful habitation. And he gives you the, the grace of his peace upon your life. And he says, blessed are those who sow beside all waters, not just still ones, not just quiet waters. We, we don't just sow when, when things are good. We sow no matter what's going on around us. And why is that? Because our peace is not connected to our circumstances. Our peace is connected to our king. Our peace is connected to whose we are. And the fact that we belong to Him and the fact that He has made us His own and has given us His righteousness which restores us into a right fellowship with Him is what grants us peace. This is the heart of the entire issue. We are at peace because we are His. This is why all of man's attempts at peace will fail. Isaiah forty-eight twenty-two and fifty-seven 21. Two times Isaiah tells us that God states there is no peace for the wicked. The more we seek peace, if that's our only goal, the more it eludes us. The more desperate our attempts become, the more evil our behavior grows. The more evil we become ourselves, the more we're under the judgment of God. It is a vicious cycle that is only broken by the mercy of God in the cross of Christ. People become desperate. I have to have this thing. This thing will give me peace. And you have no right to deny me the thing that I want. Does this sound familiar? In fact, I I am so determined that you will allow me to have the thing that I want, that I demand that you play into my delusions by calling me something I clearly am not. Does this sound familiar? It's all a search for peace. A man is unhappy with his marriage, and so he goes out and cheats on his wife. Why? Because he thinks that a change in his circumstances will create peace in his life. People are unhappy because their children are unruly. So what do they do? They harm them because they think that a change in their circumstances will bring peace into their lives. You're not content with the wage that you make, so you decide, I'll take something that's not mine because I'm owed it. And so a little bit more will make me happy. I will have peace in my life. Everything that flows out of our chaos is a desperate grab for something we're never going to obtain because the core of our dilemma is not that we don't have what we want. It's that we don't want the right thing. The core of our dilemma is that we're searching for our peace in our stuff and in in our circumstances and in what we can put our hands on and in what we can control. But peace only comes from a right relationship with God. Peace only grows out of righteousness being planted in us. That's why Ezekiel chapter 7, verses 25 and 26 say this. Destruction comes, and they will seek peace, but there shall be none. Disaster will come upon disaster, and rumor upon rumor. I think that Ezekiel's been reading the papers. They will seek a vision from a prophet, but the law will perish from the priest, and counsel from the elders. Our problem with peace experientially is the fruit of our absence of peace existentially. We don't experience peace because we are existing outside of a right relationship with God. And that is the core of our lack of peace. Mankind is not born into a peaceful relationship with God. Look at Jeremiah chapter 8. Jeremiah chapter 8, beginning at verse 8. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Look, the false pen of the scribes certainly works falsehood. The wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom do they have? Therefore, I will give their wives to others their fields to those who will inherit them, because from the least even to the greatest, everyone is given to covetousness. From the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely, for they have healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not ashamed at all. Did they know how to blush? Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. In the time of their punishment, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. Why is this? Well, because we are born at war with God. And lying about that doesn't change it. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are born condemned. And the message of the church has to begin at the place of truth. We cannot lie about it. We cannot dance around it. We cannot pretend that God has not said what God has said. The message of the church must begin with the truth of man's condition. Man is born spiritually dead at war with God, rebels against his right and glorious reign. Everything in us hates him. Everything in us despises his glory. And if we had the power to accomplish our will, we would cast him off of his throne and set ourselves in his place. Now let me tell you just the end of the story here. It's been tried. Satan had a whole lot more power than any of us do and he made a good run at it and God cast him out without a thought. You're not going to accomplish your wicked end, but what you seek is ending up being the fruit of your life if you are outside of a right relationship with God. You want to have nothing of God in your life and so understand that peace comes from God. So you will indeed have nothing of God in your life. You can go your way and you can play your games and you can have your imaginations and you can live your delusions and you can do all the things that you think you want to do and you can demand that people respect your choices and demand that people respect your will and in the end, it will bring you none of the peace that you are seeking. And when the church refuses to speak the truth about this, we are the false prophets that that, um, Jeremiah speaks of. When the church will not stand up and say the truth is I'm sorry, you don't like what you hear, but this is the truth. When we're unwilling to say this, we become the false prophets who heal the the, the hurt of God's people lightly, saying peace, peace, it's okay. How many churches today are eyeballs deep in telling the world, well, you know, God really doesn't have, and he doesn't say much about homosexuality and transgenderism and all these things. It's all okay. And, and God would never say that you can't you know, exercise freedom of choice over your own body. He, he says, oh, he's okay with abortion. Don't worry about it. How many churches are standing in that place? Naming the name of Christ and proclaiming such lies... In the end, understand this. When we do this, we set ourselves against God. And if we are setting ourselves as a nation against God, why does it surprise us that our nation is filled with such violence and chaos and such an absence of peace? Beloved, if you are here this day, if you are hearing these things, you are here knowing exactly where I'm coming from and knowing exactly what I'm saying because I say it every week, If you didn't like it, you wouldn't come back. So let me get to the heart of what I have to say to us. It's our fault for not proclaiming the truth more clearly. We who know the truth have an obligation to speak the truth. We have to. We have to tell the people that God puts in our path the truth. We need to do it with grace. We need to do it with humility. We need to do it with love. But we need to speak the truth. And we cannot play games with the truth any longer. We pray for revival and then we work for ruin. Those things don't coexist. You want to pray for revival, then do the work that accompanies revival. Speak the truth, proclaim the gospel, carry the message to the lost and to the dying. We have to do this. It is our responsibility because the peace that they need, we hold. The peace that they need, we have been given as a mercy gift from our King. And He offers it freely to all who will come. He offers it freely to any who will bend the knee. Who will proclaim Him as Lord. Our job is to carry the gospel because the message of God contained in the gospel, the message of God contained in the scripture, changes the hearts of men. All of our games don't change anybody's heart. All of our pretenses don't change anything except to make them worse. We carry the message that will transform the world. And I understand that sometimes we're afraid. I understand we're worried about consequences. I understand we're worried about offending people. I understand we're worried about actual physical harm sometimes. I understand that right now we live in a culture where the church is under an increasingly more intense attack. Every time a church stands up for truth, the attacks get worse and worse. And so what I'm asking you to do is to stand up and speak the truth, knowing that it could very likely have real consequences for us, right here in this tiny little town. But I'm also asking you to believe that God is faithful. And I'm asking you to believe that God will do what God is going to do, and that it will be glorious when he does it. And in the end, if we, if we fear and we allow fear to hold us back from being faithful, fear is a denial of peace. Isn't it? Isn't fear a denial that we believe God will protect us? And isn't fear a denial that we believe that God will be faithful? You know, fear has a twin named worry. And those things don't belong in the life of a Christian. Nor does doubt. I understand they creep in from time to time, but certainly don't put them up for the night. Look, here's the truth. You have no control over who knocks on the door of your mind, but you have all the control in the world over who you invite in to supper. So fear, worry, doubt, anxiety, these things have no place in your heart. They have no place in your life. They are a denial of our king. And they are a sin against the peace that he gives to us. Because he gives us peace to sustain us in the midst of our trials. When Jesus first gave his peace to his disciples, what did he say? He said, peace I give you, my peace I leave you. I don't give like the world gives. The world's going to hate you, but do not fear. I have overcome the world. These are the the words of our Lord. And for us as followers of Christ, we must be faithful to obey this command. Look at Philippians chapter 4. Let's consider it from the positive here. Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. What is Paul telling us here? He's telling us here that if we will simply refuse to give fear a place in our lives and and refuse to give anxiety a foothold in in the doorway of our minds, that God will pour out more of his peace, which will guard us when the enemy comes against us. Maybe not physically, that's in his absolute domain, but it will absolutely guard our minds. It will guard our hearts and our minds through the reality of who Christ is, because peace is the loyalty gift, it is the love gift, it is the gift that God gives to those who are His own. As we're going to follow after Him, we have to recognize this. It is the gift of God that God gives to us in Christ Jesus. Listen to how Jesus expressed it when He came back from the dead in John chapter 20. John chapter 20, starting at verse 19. Jesus has already given them the command of his peace, and he's already given them the truth of the resurrection. And verse 19 says this, On the same day at the evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut and the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Look, everything that is needful comes through the person of Jesus Christ. Everything that you need to get this right to recognize he is king of peace because he is king of righteousness, comes through him. God does not require of you anything that he does not give you. That's an always true statement. Whatever God requires of you, he will also provide. He will always provide everything that is needful because he loves you. John chapter 1 verse 17 says, The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So grace is what? It's the beginning of all good things. God gives us grace that we might seek Him in time of need. Truth, the reality of what is and what isn't. Who brought these things? Jesus. Jesus. Moses didn't give us grace and truth. Moses gave us a law that we couldn't keep. Moses gave us a law that was designed to condemn us because it was designed to show us just how far from God we truly are. Now, it also gave us the understanding of who God is, so it gives us a good guide and a good moral code by which we live and by which we construct our societies. But in the end, the law wasn't given to save anybody, it never could. If righteousness could come through the law, then Christ didn't need to die. What God gave us is the person of Jesus Christ, who himself is the source of grace and truth. That's where we begin, is by understanding grace and truth comes through Christ. But also, understand that righteousness comes through him. Romans chapter 3 again, verses 22 and following says this, Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ "...to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus." So through faith in Christ Jesus, we find righteousness coming to us. Justification then also comes through Him. Look again at verse 24. "...being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus." In other words, peace comes through Christ as a result of our justification. I'm going to say that again. Peace, real peace, comes through Christ as a result of us being justified. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So every single ounce of peace that we hope to have, every single ounce of peace that we're looking for, everything that the world is scrambling for, comes down to this one point. They need to be saved. They need to be forgiven. They need to be born again. Because peace comes through being justified by Christ. We have peace with God through the justification that is in Christ Jesus. This means that what Jesus accomplished was to create peace between us and God. Now, I want to make sure we're understanding the context of what's being said here. Often, when people talk about peace, they're only talking about they're circumstances. They're talking about, well, I, all this this chaos is going on around me, and I just have no peace. Well, you're looking in the wrong place, and you're misunderstanding what the core of your problem really is. The core of your problem is that there is a problem between you and God. And in the end, when man needed to be brought into peace with God, something had to change. What's the core of our problem? God is angry. The core of our problem is that God is angry with the wicked every day. The core of our problem is that our unrighteousness is an offense against a holy God. And until that's resolved, nothing else can move forward. Until that's resolved, there's no way in the world that anybody will ever have any hope of peace whatsoever. But Jesus satisfied God's wrath, and fulfilled all of God's righteousness and reconciled us to God by His death on the cross. Romans chapter 3, verse 25 says, God set Him forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. God satisfied His wrath. A propitiation. What is a propitiation? A propitiation is an appeasement of an angry God. God's wrath was righteously kindled against a rebel creation. In fact, all of creation, according to Romans chapter 1, had been subjected to that futility. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul says it again. Everything that is was subjected to the futility of our sin. And that rebellion against God angered him. His wrath is just. His wrath is righteous. But the death of Christ in our place satisfied that wrath. He appeased it. He made it go away. He paid the price that wrath demanded. And in doing so, he vindicated the righteousness of God. Which is why Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 8, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That's important to note as loudly and as plainly as possible that it is God who initiated this overture of peace. That the same God has done everything that is needful to provide that peace. And he has also made sure that he is drawing and cleansing his children who actually come to him in peace. Isaiah 27 verses 4 and 5 says this. Fury is not in me. Who would set briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them all together. Let him take hold of my strength that he may make peace with me. And he shall make peace with me. In other words, what God says is what you have to recognize is that what you need for peace with me is me. Come to me. Ask me. Seek me, find in me everything that I promise I am. Find in me everything that I tell you I have always been. Find in me everything that demonstrates all that I have always done for you. What grounds did the children of Israel have? What right did they have when they stood on the cusp of the promised land to say, Oh, no, 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 God only brought us here to slay us? What possible reason could they ever have thought that was his intent? It was their fear. It was their faithlessness. It was the fact that they, they traveled with him all this time, but they still didn't know him because their focus had only been on what he gave. Their focus had only been on the things that he provided, and they still didn't know his character. They still didn't know his nature. Now, it's important for us to remember that although God told Moses, step aside, I'm going to cook them, was it ever his intention to destroy them? It was never his intention to destroy them like that. It was never his intention to wipe out his promise to Abraham. It was his intention in this moment to teach Moses something important. To teach Moses something about himself. To teach Moses that he was a God who forgives and he was a God who keeps his word. Because his promise to Abram about making a descent out of his him was real. Yes, this generation, this faithless generation, the mixed multitude as the writer of Hebrews calls them, Everyone over 20 dies, except for two. The children, the people under 20, they're still the descent of Abraham. They're going to come into the promised land. And God's purpose in everything that he had done was to bring them to this place, to teach them some things about himself. His his purpose never changes. And we have to recognize the truth that God is always at work. And we don't know where in this parallel we might be. We don't know if God is going to restore this nation or if God's going to turn us out into the wilderness to die. That's his call. It's not ours. But it's also not really our concern. Our concern is to stand faithfully, like Joshua and Caleb, and proclaim the goodness of the Lord. Our concern is to stand and say, hasn't God always been faithful? And I ask you the question, hasn't he always been faithful? Many has. Has he ever one time not kept his promises? No. Our calling as the people who have walked with him, who have known his faithfulness, is to recall his faithfulness, to proclaim his faithfulness, to be always telling people, look, the peace that you need is found in the faithfulness of God. The peace that you seek is found in who God is. Don't search in all these other places. These things will only destroy your life. They will only ruin you. The message of hope is the message of Christ. Because Christ has made peace with us. He has made peace with God on our behalf. And having been made at peace with God, God goes even further and adopts us into His family as precious children. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 says, "...you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus." So not content to leave us strangers... Not content to leave us servants. Not content to just leave us as some example which he'll point to and say, look how good I was to these weird people. He said, these, these are my children. These are my sons. These are my daughters. These are my precious inheritance. These are the people that I love more than anyone else because they are mine. And I wonder of that is that every single person who calls out to Christ, asking for forgiveness, and crying out to Him, proclaiming Him Lord, confessing Him as Lord and Savior, finds themselves adopted into the family of God with a full portion of that inheritance. And the righteousness of God being poured out over them in the life that He gives to us. Now, that means then, that peace not only becomes an exchange between us and God, but peace also begins to be an exchange within ourselves. One of the things we have to recognize is that the the cry of misery that, that drives people to extremes is an internal cry. They may point to their circumstances, and they may point to somebody that they're going to blame, and they may cry that they're a victim, and they may cry that all these different things have happened, and you just don't understand. But the reality is, is that this is an internal recognition of their own failure to be at peace with God, and that creates crisis in us. We know what we are, whether we have courage to confess it or not, we know what we are, We understand there's something desperately, inherently, tragically wrong with us. And in the end, we know that that thing that's wrong with us will destroy us unless it's undone. Once we are made at peace with God, God pours out His Spirit over us and gives us His peace within us to suddenly begin to make peace with ourselves. He gives to us His Spirit, who renews our souls, our minds, and our bodies, which then brings peace and harmony to our lives. And His peace then becomes a guard over our lives. So turn back to Philippians chapter 4. And let's read this with a slightly different emphasis. Philippians chapter 4. And and let's start at verse 7. Now let's back up to verse 6 again. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. So this is an internal peace. This is a peace which sets us at peace with ourselves. But Then he goes on to say, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, Whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things, and the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Now that becomes more magnificent still, because it's not the peace of God being with you. He didn't say the peace of God will be with you. He said, the God of peace will be with you. In other words, once we have been made right with God, once that barrier has been broken down by the blood of Christ, and we have been brought into the family as a blood-bought child of the King, once that peace has been given to us because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, then what happens is the relationship between us and God dramatically changes. We are no longer at odds with Him. We are no longer at war with Him. We now are in a relationship with Him which calls us to fellowship. And we get the peace of God on the front end saying, Lord, help me in this moment. I'm really scared. I'm really afraid. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how to handle it. I need your peace. God pours out His peace. We dwell on the good things that He is. We dwell on the good things that He says. Whatever is good, whatever is praiseworthy, whatever is true, whatever is noble. And the result of that is that we become more attuned to the reality that now the God who is our peace dwells in us. We have peace. Not just with God. But we have peace because God lives in us because His Spirit dwells in us, and the God of peace is with us, beloved. This is why our peace, when it is rightly understood, and rightly based in the truth of who Christ is and what Christ has done, our peace is unshakable. Nobody can take it from you, because nobody here has anything to do with what gave it to you. You can take everything I own, and I will still have the peace of God dwelling in me. You can imprison me. You can destroy me. You can ruin everything I have ever loved. You can take my family. You can do anything you want and it will not change the fact that I have the peace of God dwelling in me because I am a blood-bought child of the King. You can't touch anything that actually matters about who I am. This is the inheritance that belongs to all of you. This is the inheritance that belongs to every single person who is found in Christ Jesus. And in the darkest days of your lives, God will remind you of these truths. Because the God of peace Himself will be with you. No matter what's coming, no matter what it shapes up to be, no matter what the world tries... Understand that God's peace is not a thing that He gives you. It is Himself. He dwells in your hearts. And since it's not a thing, it can't be taken. Have you ever sat and read the book of Acts and wondered how Paul could be so upbeat, chained to a floor of a prison in, by the way, Philippi? having just been beaten by the jailer who in a few moments is going to encounter the risen Christ in a way he never imagined possible. (laughs) Have you ever considered that the reality of who God was in Paul was simply the fact that Paul knew who God was? He spent his time dwelling on the God who saved him. He could write to us in Philippians chapter 4 how to do this because he had done it. He had dwelt on the things that were praiseworthy and trustworthy and noble and of good report and things that lifted the mind and the heart and the eye to God. And I, I struggle with this immensely. I have a violent revulsion against the news and all manners of it. It's bad for my soul. I say this often. If you've been around me anywhere, you've heard me say it at least once, I'm sure. The news is bad for my soul. At the same time, I recognize that I don't want to be ignorant. I I, kind of need to know what's going on. And so I've determined that I have to have some sort of a balanced ratio in my life, which means I haven't got that ratio figured out yet because I'm still struggling with this sometimes. But I think that it means less news and more Bible. Less news and more God. Less news and more truth. I think what it means is that for every little bit of the stuff that I have to take in so I know what's going on, I need to take in enough of the rest to give me something good to dwell on. And I have to do that continually. Which means I have to be careful about the things that I read. I have to be careful about the way that I choose to spend my free time. I have to be careful about the things that I give myself to and the things that I allow myself to participate in. Some of the things that I I would like to spend more time doing, they're not inherently bad. They're just not inherently good. I have to be careful of it because I'm aware that there's a whole lot at stake. I have to be mindful of how I fill up my mind and how I fill up my heart. And I struggle with this. It's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to get right. But what God promises us is that the more we give our hearts and our minds and our attention to Him, the more we fix ourselves on His glory and His nature, the more this truth becomes present in us. See, I'm, I'm convinced that all of our problems as, as human beings, whether we're saved or not, is a direct result of a need for God. If you're unsaved, you need to be saved before anything else can change. But the fact that you're saved doesn't mean you stop needing God, and too many Christians think it does. How many Christians live like, I don't have any need for God, I went to church on Sunday, I'm good. That's not how you live this life. We have to be clear about who we are and whose we are, because we are going to be in the middle of the conflict. And that's not necessarily our choice. It is the reality of what God has decreed and what God has declared. If you want to have peace in the midst of it, you better be steadfastly attached to the God who is your peace. If you want to have peace in the midst of it, you better be connected to the one who is everything for that peace. Because whether you're connected to that peace or not, what he has ordained for your life, he has ordained for your life. There's no promise in scripture that says, after you get this whole peace thing right, then I'm going to put you in the fire. That's not how it works. You walk through the fire and you won't be burned because I'll be with you. The floods will rise up against you but you won't be drowned because I'm with you. Fear not. This is the God who calls us into a relationship with Him. And out of that relationship, peace is a byproduct of that truth. That's why if we go searching after peace, we're going to miss it. But when we go seeking after God, we find peace. Because peace is who He is. He is our peace. He is our hope. He is our life. Now, imagine with me, if you will, just exactly what it would look like if everybody in the world understood this reality at the same time? Do you think the world would change? Uh Uh-huh. In in past, in history, when large segments of the world have understood this at the same time, we have this fancy theological word for it. It's called awakening. Awakening. Remarkably, awakening is when God pours out his spirit over a dead people and calls vast numbers of them to life in a dynamic and vital way. Historically, awakening has always proceeded on the heels of revival, which is when God does that very same thing to his people. Revival's not something you can schedule, revival's not something you can say, hey, I'm gonna rent a tent, we're gonna have revival. That's not it. Revival is when God moves over the hearts of His people and calls us to Himself. Causes us to awake out of our sleepiness. Causes us to look at our lives and say, Lord, I'm so sorry. I've been wrong about so many things. And revival always begins with repentance. Revival always, always, always begins with an awareness that we deserve to be punished and we cry for mercy. It begins with repentance. And when God moves in the hearts of his people and his people start to repent, then awakening happens because revival happens and all of a sudden the Spirit of God is unleashed on a people. Do we want to see this land healed? It begins with us seeking the face of God in repentance, asking for him to revive us. I don't get to get on my knees and say, God, you know, I want you to revive Jared because he's a mess. I I want revival for you as well, brother. Don't mishear me. But that's not how it works. I get on my knees and I say, Oh God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry I'm broken. Please heal me. Please restore me. Please make me love you like you deserve to be loved. And when I cry that out over and over and over, God listens. And when we all do that together, God listens and He changes our hearts. And the focus has to be on the fact that God deserves to be loved by His people before it's anything else. Because if we're searching for peace as a thing, you're going to miss it. It flows out of who He is. And it flows out of the relationship that we have with Him. As we are set right in ourselves, then the impact over the world begins to grow. See, peace comes also between men. It comes also between the people who are living on the earth. God has reconciled all of creation to himself. He has done the work to make a way for his entire creation to be restored to him. Every man that he has chosen to call, every woman that he has chosen to call, and all of the earth itself will be restored in Christ. Colossians 1.20 says, By him, that's Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. That means that man will be reconciled to man in Christ. Man will be reconciled to nature in Christ. Man will also be reconciled to angels. Now, I'm not suggesting that angels can be redeemed or that they're a part of the target of his death. What I am suggesting is this. Angels are God's servants. Amen? Do you think that it's foolish for somebody who hates God to pretend that an angel is coming to them with a blessing? Do you ever think about that? Our culture is crazy for angels. But I'll tell you this much. If angels are coming to this nation to bring a message, it's not going to be one they want to hear. See, it's not their job to bring a message of hope to a people in rebellion. When angels moved over a people in the Scripture, what did they bring? Death. The angel of death passed over Egypt. When David sinned against God by taking a census, The angel of death brought pestilence. When David sinned by Bathsheba, and he said, God, I'll just cast myself on you. Bring judgment on this people. The Bible says an angel went out over the face. The messengers of God, when they move over a people that do not belong to God, do not bring good things. They bring death. They bring destruction. They bring all the things that you can turn on the news and watch every single night. Beloved, this is the judgment of God upon a people. But The glory is is that once we are reconciled to Christ, they're our friends again. We're restored to Him. We're restored to His servants. We're restored to a right way in everything that is. And we're reconciled one unto another so that in Christ, everyone who has been bought by His blood is restored to God and everything that is His. It is gloriously beautiful. It is wondrously, gloriously beautiful. You see, Christ broke down the wall of separation between the nations. Which means that not only are we allowed to be reconciled to God and reconciled to the, na- to, the, to the angels and reconciled to nature. We also are permitted to be reconciled one unto another as nation unto nation. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 14. Paul writes this, For He Himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two thus making peace that he might reconcile to them both god that he might reconcile them both to god in one body through the cross thereby putting to death the enmity he came and he preached peace to those who were afar and to those who were near for through him We both have access, by one Spirit, to the Father. Therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a body, into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. I have a strange mind, if you haven't ever figured that out. And I have to wonder how difficult it was for Paul to write those words. This Pharisee of Pharisees, this son of Benjamin, this Jew proud of his heritage as the people of God. To realize that the Gentiles who he had been trained from his youth to despise were just as precious in the sight of God as his own people. And I have to recognize the truth that there is a parallel to how we live in this culture and how we live in this country around the question of race. God absolutely detests racism in all of its forms and in all of its personalities. It is an evil that must be eradicated. And I I think that we are fearfully late in abolishing the hatred that exists in our own hearts. As the people of God We need to recognize that God has called us to reconciliation. And I'm not talking about the crazy, insane things that the culture wants you to do because of BLM. I'm not talking about going out and finding a black man and kneeling down and kissing his boot. That's ridiculousness. I am talking about examining your own heart and asking yourself how do you feel about that person when all you can see is their skin? What rises up in you? Because if anything is in you other than there's somebody who either needs Christ or who is my brother, those are the only two options, by the way. They either need Christ or they're already your brother. And if you're you're feeling about anybody, regardless of the color of their skin, if it's wrapped up in anything except those two motives, you have some heart work to do and some repenting to do. And when your heart is set right, then God will set right your actions. You see, these things slip into our language. They slip into the way we talk about people. They slip into the stories that we tell and the details that we include and the details that we don't. They slip into all the little things that comprise our hidden agendas and our hidden motives. And beloved, there is going to be an accounting Because God sent Christ to break down the wall of separation. He sent Christ so that as we have peace with Him, and He gives us the glorious and gracious gift of peace with ourselves, we also can know the peace that comes with our brothers. Our our brothers in humanity, let's go at least that far. Because whether somebody is, is born again or not, we are all still sons of Adam. We are all still called to to aim them towards Christ. There should be no barriers to that job. There should be no barriers to that task. And there should be no barriers that arise in us. And, And as Christians, we need to recognize that God changes our hearts for people because He loves us, and because he loves them. The scripture says plainly that God has for himself people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation of the earth. So I would challenge you to examine your hearts and ask yourself which one of those tribes, tongues, or nations would you prefer is not in your place in heaven. I mean, they, they can be saved, but I want them on the other side. I don't want to have to see them. I don't like the way they worship. I don't like their practices. I don't like the songs that they sing. I don't like the food that they eat. I don't like, I don't like that they're not like me. You see... One of the wonders of what God is doing in the church by calling us to repent on this count is that he is magnifying and explosively expanding the glory of Christ being proclaimed by every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Because all of those different expressions of worship born out of different hearts and different lives and different Experiences of of everything that is. They add depth and they add wonder. And doesn't Christ deserve that? Doesn't Jesus deserve to be honored in every way that is pleasing to him? In the end, Christ reigning in our hearts changes our hearts towards each other that we might live lovingly and peaceably with one another. Isaiah 11.6 says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. Look at Micah chapter 4. find this passage particularly compelling, because Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah. And these verses that we're about to read here, chapter 4, starting at verse 1, say this, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains." And it shall be exalted above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. Peoples, that's plural. This is a Jew writing in the Old Testament, 800 years before Christ. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of God from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between many peoples, and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war anymore. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. For all people walk, each in the name of his God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And the we that is included there is the we of every nation every tribe, every tongue who has come to worship in the house of God. And you say, wow, Micah, that's a tremendous vision 800 years before Christ. And I say, you don't know the half of it. Turn to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. starting at verse 2. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of God from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation. And neither shall they learn war anymore. And I ask you the question, if Micah and Isaiah are contemporaries, did God mean what he told them both at the same time? Amen. You see, the result of the peace of Christ being given to us so that we have peace with God and peace with ourselves means peace with our fellow man so that we can share the gospel effectively with everyone and the world can be brought into submission to the glory of Christ when God's word does its work. Beloved, this is the revival that Scripture promises. And it has real effects in the way that the world works. We're not just talking about making churches full. I don't particularly care if this church ever fills up. I kind of like it small. We all know each other. It's friendly. <laughs> I don't have any real agenda about having the church have 500 people in here. That would be exhausting. Just, just, just trying to know everybody. That's a lot of people. And so you get these churches that have 5,000, 10,000, 15,000. There's no pretense of it being a church. John Owen said that the upward limit of a church acting as a church was about 200. I think he was right. You get much beyond that and you lose something important. But I'm digressing. But how wonderful would it be to see the glory of Christ as revival transformed the land? How wonderful would it be to see the glory of Christ as revival was poured out and awakening was poured out to the very ends of the earth. Our God deserves that. Our Christ deserves that. And whether you can make it happen or not, which you can't, but God might, whether you see it happen or not, should you not want it, should you not desire it? And should you not desire it in such a way that you live towards it? In the end, that's really what this comes down to. It comes down to the people of God simply being the people of God. And if we will just be the people of God, then God will take care of everything that's his business. We don't need to worry about how. And we don't need to worry about making sure that all of our P's and Q's are taken care of and our T's are crossed and our I's are dotted and our jots and tittles all line up in the right spots. None of those things are our problem. Our problem is simply to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind and with all of our strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the calling that's been placed on us. And what flows out of that reality is peace. Magnificent, glorious, world-changing, life-altering, God-honoring peace. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace in this day and that you would teach us to love you and to honor you. And I pray, God, that you would help us understand that the core of all of this is about you. God, peace is a result of knowing you. And Christ is our King of peace. God, let us love him and honor him as he so richly deserves. And let us be transformed by his grace and for his glory. That he would be honored among the nations. God, let nothing that we say and nothing that we do stand in the way of the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. Let us be faithful. Let Christ be honored. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. Amen.